From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I thought the change happened from the outside, but what I realized is I was looking at it all wrong. And that if I were to think about elected office as an organizing platform, an ability to organize both in Congress and to bring kind of the movement, the outside movement together in a coordinated strategy to achieve the kind of change I wanted to see, then that was that was definitely worth it. That's Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal from Seattle. In only her third term in Congress, she has emerged as a powerful progressive voice within the Democratic Party. As chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, she helped broker the passage of both the bipartisan infrastructure package and the Build Back Better social safety net bill. Jayapal joins me today to talk about her unusual path to Congress, the role she played in negotiating the Build Back Better agenda, and what it means to be a progressive in today's Democratic Party. That's coming up. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. As we approach the holidays, a reminder to check out the cafe merch shop featuring some fan favorites like our signature Stay Tuned hoodie and coffee mug and signed copies of my book, Doing Justice. Head to cafe.com slash shop. That's cafe.com slash shop. Now let's get to your questions. This is a question from Twitter user Shannon S. Brown who writes, would you describe what kind of support staff there is and their roles in big cases? We only hear big names such as the prosecutor. I'd like to hear the work that goes on behind the scenes, please. And thank you. Well, Shannon, that's a great and important question. And I'm very glad you asked it. When when we discuss cases here and on the Insider Podcast, often as a shorthand, we refer to the person who gave the opening statement or the closing argument, the lead prosecutors in the case. But boy, let me tell you, it takes a lot of people in a lot of places to bring a case together. That's true on the defense side as well. So let me mention some of them. First, in any criminal case, there's always an investigative agency, a law enforcement partner. That could be the police department. It could be the FBI. It could be the DEA, Secret Service. There's almost always an outside investigative agency, which by the way, they themselves have a lead agent and then other support staff on the investigative side as well. Often at trial, and in my experience, in every criminal case in federal court, There's actually at the counsel's table, not just the lead prosecutor and the other prosecutors, but also the case agent. So that's a very, very important part of putting a case together. Then all prosecutors' offices have a whole bunch of other staff, including paralegals and assistants. They do all sorts of things from site checking briefs to putting together PowerPoints, to arranging witness interviews, to putting exhibits together for court or for hearings. They are invaluable. And there's a tradition, at least in SDNY, of many paralegals leaving to go to law school and then coming back and becoming prosecutors themselves. Then, in many places, including SDNY, there are internal investigators who either supplement the work of the outside law enforcement agency or do the work on their own. We were blessed in the Southern District of New York with one of the best-kept secrets in the entire Department of Justice with 19 amazing, fabulous, seasoned, smart, hardworking investigators among my favorite people in the whole office, and they contributed to every case as well. 
then depending on the nature of the witnesses in the case or how you went about the investigation, we have interpreters who help you understand the testimony, both at trial and in preparation. If you have Spanish speakers or foreign language speakers, the interpreters are absolutely invaluable uh, and their skill is very much in demand and helps make a case much stronger. There's audiovisual staff who help make exhibits for trial uh, and for grand jury purposes. And that can sometimes be very key to getting across points that are sometimes lost in a mass of words. As they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. Then depending on the nature of the case, there are victim witness workers. We at the Southern District when I was there had a wonderful woman named Wendy Olson who would do everything from making sure that witnesses had a place to stay, particularly if they were victims of a crime, to something appropriate to wear, to making sure they were comfortable throughout the investigative process and the trial process. And it can make a big difference in the quality of life for victim witnesses and for the way they testify to have someone taking care of their needs. And there are other folks too. There are the folks in the clerk's office, the folks in the press office who also answer questions and make sure the filings go okay. So there's a lot of people. All of that stuff, by the way, may not be clear to folks. It goes on behind the scenes. It's rarely celebrated. So I am really glad you asked the question. A lot goes in to not just large criminal trials, but every criminal trial. This question comes from Twitter user with handle at St. John 56, who writes, Hi Preet, if someone takes the fifth, does that mean they can't be questioned for any prosecution and therefore free to say and do whatever they want? And second, if they are pardoned by a POTUS and then questioned, taking the fifth no longer applies? Hashtag ask Preet. Well, it's a good question. Let's go back to basics. What does the Fifth Amendment say? Well, it relates to a lot of rights, including due process and other things. But for purposes of your question, the Fifth Amendment says, quote, no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, end quote. So it is thought to be a very, very important right, a very protective right for people who have been investigated or might be prosecuted in this country. And it's a bedrock principle of our criminal justice system. Now, when you ask the question, if you take the fifth, does that mean they can't be questioned for any prosecution? That's not quite right. And people differ on the process by which a good faith invocation of the Fifth Amendment is done. As we've been seeing play out in the January 6th investigation, uh, two people look like they're pleading the fifth. They include Jeffrey Clark, uh, a former DOJ official, and John Eastman, a former outside lawyer to Donald Trump. Now, in both of those cases, there is some controversy and dispute about whether they're properly invoking their Fifth Amendment rights. The committee has taken the position, I think appropriately, that you have to invoke the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination with great specificity with respect to each question being asked, because there are some things like your name, uh, your background, your employment, and other basics that clearly are not incriminating on their own. And questions about those kinds of things should be able to be asked. And then it gets more dicey if you start to get into communications with respect to the president, if there is a good faith belief that maybe criminal conduct can be ascertained from that in a criminal case might be forthcoming. As Joyce and I discussed in the Cafe Insider podcast this week, one other consequence of invoking the fifth, probably in this context, means that so long as it's a somewhat reasonable invocation of the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination, it's probably the case that Congress would be loath to refer that person for criminal prosecution of contempt of Congress. And I think it would be very unlikely for the Department of Justice to prosecute someone for contempt of Congress who has asserted Fifth Amendment right, even if it's not fully clean. I think it just gets difficult and too muddy, and I doubt that it will go forward. The other possibility, by the way, and this happens from time to time, and it's a fraught decision that prosecutors and investigators make, someone takes the Fifth, you can decide to give them a form of immunity. And that happens in criminal cases. It also happens in congressional investigations. Then you have taken away, if you decide to do that, you've taken away the possibility of their own words being used against them in a criminal case because you've given them immunity for that purpose. I don't know if that will happen here. That's a conversation for another day. And there are lots of considerations that are taken into account before you decide to do something that is, is not uncommon, but still a fairly serious decision. With respect to your second question, if someone's pardoned by a POTUS, does taking the fifth no longer apply? Yeah, that's generally true because there's no more criminal case in which your words can be used against you as the Fifth Amendment provides. But it has to be very specific. So for example, if you robbed a bank and got pardoned for it, but during that same period of time you committed insider trading, you can't take the fifth with respect to the bank robbery 
because there's no more criminal case. You've been pardoned. But you haven't been pardoned for insider trading, and you can invoke the Fifth Amendment with respect to that conduct. So it's specific to the conduct in question, not just a broad invocation as to all things you may or may not have done in your life. And we'll see how it plays out with Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman, and perhaps others. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, and delivering your product, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. But that's hard to do with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a top-rated cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. My guest this week is Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. By her own admission, she's something of an unlikely politician. But over the last year, the one-time activist has become a key inside player, leading the Congressional Progressive Caucus and helping to negotiate President Biden's legislative agenda. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Preet. It's great to be with you. We were just chatting before we started taping, and I said, how are you? And you said, I guess that's the first question everyone has to ask each other these days still. And how are you? I am good. Thank you. I, I wake up every morning, and I feel blessed that my family and my friends and my loved ones are okay, and that we're moving in the right direction as a country. But obviously, it's still a question, right, that never used to be more than just a formality several years ago. I noted in your bio we have some similarities. One is, of course, we were both born in India. That's right. My parents were not overly pleased at first <laughs> when I chose to be a government major and then went to law school. And I learned that you studied English literature in college. How did that go over? <laughs> not very well. Um, when you have Indian parents who use, you know, their last $5,000 to send you to the United States by yourself <laughs> because you're supposed to become a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, three vaunted professions. Those are the only three. That's right. Those are the only three. And then you use your one phone call home that you get every year 
to call your dad from the dorm phone and tell him you're going to be an English literature major instead of an economics <laughs> major. It is not a good day in the family. You know, he, I had to hold the phone away from my ear as he screamed at me and said, I didn't send you to the United States to learn how to speak English. You already know how to speak English. You know how to speak English. The only thing where I'm trying to think what would be worse in, in an immigrant Indian family, maybe art history. Art history, yeah, yeah, I think um, definitely the arts, but I will say that even years later, you know, I was running, I had founded and ran a nonprofit organization, my parents came to visit, and it happened to be the year that the Washington governor, Governor Gregoire, was our keynote, and she came over to meet my dad, and he said, yes, my daughter really enjoys this volunteer work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not a full time gig. That's true. So, you know, I learned also in connection with this interview, I believe there are only 18 naturalized citizens in the entire U.S. Congress. That's correct. And it's gone up. Do you think we need more? It's gone up in the last couple of years. I think when I came in in 2017, it may have been 13. Don't quote me on the number. So we've increased the number slightly. But the reality is that in today's Congress and recently, you know, in the in the last decades, we have very few naturalized citizens that serve in Congress. And I think that is changing, but it's changing very slowly. And it's a number that is only topped by the number of women of color in Congress, which is also extremely small. I think it's something like um, it was 79 since the history of the founding of Congress. I get a question along these lines on a regular basis, so I'm going to turn the question to you, and that is, how's your experience being an immigrant and a naturalized citizen? How does that color your outlook in government? Well, I think it really informs how we see the world and the United States in relationship to the world, because I did spend the first 16 years of my life outside of the United States, growing up in India, Indonesia, and Singapore. And then I spent 10 years when I was not yet a U.S. citizen working on international health issues. And so for me, the world is much bigger than just the United States, our relationships on foreign policy, diplomatic relations, even international health. You look at the crisis of COVID that we're facing today. And from the beginning, I have been focused on how do we address COVID in the world because it dramatically affects how the United States fares. And so I think on everything, including immigration, which is an area I spent 20 years on as an activist before coming to Congress, it has changed and shaped the way I see what the policy priorities are, what the solutions are, and what our responsibility is as a country to lead in the world. You said something at the outset of the interview that I want to come back to. You said, America is moving in the right direction. A lot of people in this country don't believe that to be so. Why is there such a disconnect? Well, when I said it, I meant it in the context of COVID. Well, people don't really believe that either. (laughs) I mean, a lot of folks don't. Yeah. No, there's a big divide. And I think it's really unfortunate that public health has become politicized and that people, you know, thanks to Donald Trump, really doubting COVID, not taking it seriously, you know, touting treatments that were not real treatments, refusing to really come out strongly in taking on COVID initially with mask wearing and and simple things that maybe just a few years ago, nobody would have contested. We are in this place where it's a very divided, very divided country on what the facts are. And I think that's the thing, Preet, that really bothers me the most is we don't start from the same set of facts. And if you don't start from the same set of facts, then you can't get to the same conclusion because the facts are completely different. And so um, there is, you know, I think there is a real disconnect in terms of what the science is and um, taking the science seriously. And this whole question of you and I were both, you know, both born in India, I always say to people, if I hadn't gotten vaccinated, I'd be dead. And the idea that we are questioning vaccines, particularly when it comes to something that is not just about yourself, but is about the broader public. If you don't get vaccinated, it's not just yourself that suffers. It's it's the broader public. And uh, because it is it is infectious. And so 
I think that has been a real challenge for addressing what would have been a, a you know, fairly benign in some ways theory of how you get better and how you move in the right direction with COVID. If I can, I want to go back to your bio for a moment because we joked about your family's response to your being an English lit major, but then you graduated and you worked at Payne Weber. So, <laughs> you know, you, you put the English literature degree to, to business use. How come? Well, part of it was my dad. Uh, you know, he was really having a hard time. And I said, listen, I'm going to get the same job with an English lit major that I would have gotten with an economics major. And the the pitch I made to him, pre, and it was the same pitch I made to a bunch of investment banks that ended up making me offers, is if you can um, articulate in, in writing and reading um, orally, that then you really have everything you need to be successful with everything else. Everything else can be learned after that. And that was the pitch I made for a liberal arts major to go work in investment banking in the mid 1980s. And it was. It's a good pitch. It's a good pitch. You know, the older I get, the more I was having this conversation with uh, a professor the other day. The older I get, the more I think that reading and speaking and communications ability is the absolute key to success, whether you're a doctor or a scientist or an investment banker. Obviously, these other skills, analytical skills, expertise in the particular field, understanding how the law works. But but if you can't communicate it, and I don't mean at a podium necessarily, or on CNN or on MSNBC, but I mean to your colleagues and to your superiors and to your subordinates, you're just lost. That's exactly right. And and I I still uh, go by that you know I still think that that was uh, that was the right training for me and then I also think and I tell young people all the time that it's really good to do things that tell you what you don't want to do as much as things that <laughs> tell you what you do want to do those two years of investment banking were incredibly valuable to me I am very comfortable with numbers that has stood me in good stead as a nonprofit executive as a member of Congress on the budget committee. But um, it was clear to me that I did not want to continue to pursue that path. So, so you, you've been, I'm going to congratulate you on your success as a member of Congress. I see you all the time. We're going to get back to the, we're going to get to the Build Back Better agenda in a few minutes. But you clearly have had a successful run in Congress, even though you haven't been there very long. And you're clearly respected by your colleagues and you lead the Progressive Caucus. And my question to you is, if you could pick one of the, skills or experiences that you developed, whether it was, you know, living in multiple countries or studying English lit or time in finance or work at a nonprofit, what is the thing that you did before coming to Congress that helps you the most? I definitely think it was organizing. I mean, it's hard to separate those out because I do think each experience builds on the other and it just keeps, you know, adding to your arsenal of skills and all of them come in useful in a different way. But I definitely think organizing and, um, you know, understanding how you build consensus across differing perspectives, how you build a campaign, how you work a campaign. That was the theory of change um, that, you know, initially compelled me to run for office. I never really wanted to be in public office, actually, and uh, an elected official. I thought the change happened from the outside, but what I realized is I was looking at it all wrong. And that if I were to think about elected office as an organizing platform and ability to organize both in Congress and to bring kind of the movement, the outside movement together in a coordinated strategy to achieve the kind of change I wanted to see, then that was that was definitely worth it. And so that's why I ran. And I think that I've been able to show that that's possible inside Congress, you know, building up the Progressive Caucus to be the force that it is, but also working across the Democratic Caucus, working with the White House um, to achieve what I think really will be transformational change for this country. What caused you to have that epiphany that change could come from the inside? I think I got frustrated that I had spent so much time working with elected officials, some of whom were excellent, but many of whom were completely oblivious to what was happening in communities of color and immigrant communities and poor communities. You know, I was working on um, $15 minimum wage. Seattle was the first major city in the country to pass a $15 minimum wage, and I was proud to be a part of the committee that helped make that happen. Um, there were so many things that we had fought for and actually had some success in, 
but it took way longer in my mind than it should have. And um, I realized that there just weren't a lot of people like me in elected office. There weren't organizers. There weren't folks of color in, in, you know, in broad scale. There weren't immigrants, as you mentioned, starting off the interview. And um, it seems to me that you can't build good policy, whether you're, you know, in the law or whether you're in Congress, uh, if you don't have a diversity of perspectives. And so that I think that was part of it. And then the other part of it was there's some ego involved in running for office. And I think I looked at the people that were running and had stayed out of the race, had stayed out. People kept asking me to run. This was initially for my state Senate race. And I suddenly one day woke up and thought, you know, I can do better than that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I decided to step in and it was very late, but um, but it was great. And I became the first South Asian American ever elected to the state legislature. And actually at the time, the only woman of color in the state Senate. And uh, so I think, you know, I worked very hard to make sure that that was not the case after I left. And now we have multiple South Asians elected to the state legislature, and we have a very uh, much better diversity of women of color in, in the state legislature, including in the state Senate. So when, when you give advice to young people, as you mentioned, you sometimes do, is your advice now that they should really, really think hard about running for office as opposed to doing outside activism? I think it depends on the person. I think you really need good people at every place. And so it isn't, I don't think everybody is suited to run for office, but I think everybody should consider it as an option. And I think it is really, I tell young people that, um, you know, especially when they're not sure what they want to do, I, I say two things. One, your path does not have to be linear. My, my path was very far from linear. And I think there's a lot of advantage to having a, a path that is not linear, frankly, because you get a lot of skills in different arenas. Um, and then two, I tell them to just keep a little notebook with them and to try a lot of different things and to, to make notes about what energizes you, what depletes you. And that is a really good gauge for where you might want to apply your energies. So I don't tell everybody to run for office. I, I do tell people that they should think about it, that it is a very viable path, particularly for activists and organizers and people who never used to think of elected office as a way to organize. That is something I do talk about quite a bit. Yeah. There are various ways to get a point across or to persuade folks or to, defend, or to defend a position that you have. And obviously you use analysis and facts and figures and evidence, but there's also stories. And sometimes it's a personal story that can have an impact on people. And you, in 2019, wrote a very moving piece that you published uh, and you told a story you had never told before. And it seems even more relevant now. You talked about a very difficult decision you made years ago to have an abortion. Can you tell folks why you wanted to tell that story and what the story was? Yeah. One of the things that I learned in organizing is exactly what you said, that storytelling is really, really important. Now, typically, I was working to get other people to tell their stories, not necessarily focusing on my own. But when I got into Congress, I realized that part of connecting people to their elected officials is to be human. And to tell a story, and of course, we have a very big platform when we are members of Congress to do that. And so this was the time when uh, the abortion bans across the country were just beginning to come out in states. There were numerous states taking on abortion bans. And I think I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that uh, I could perhaps make a difference in calling attention to this issue if I were to share a very personal story that I had never shared before for more than a decade. And um, so I decided to write an op-ed in the New York Times about my abortion, which Preet, I had never told my mother about. And I had to call her before oh my goodness. I wrote about it um, because I wanted to make sure she knew what was what was happening and why I was doing what I was doing. What was her what was her reaction to a, the fact that you had had an abortion, and then B, the fact that you were going to tell the world about it? It was more on the first, I think, that I had had one and never talked to her about it. And I think we spent some time 
talking about why that was. And I think it's some of the barriers that exist to people telling their stories about abortion because we have made it a sort of shameful um, experience. I mean, I, before I published the op-ed, I should say I, I made sure that I had increased security. Um, I made sure I contacted Capitol Police to tell them that I was going to do this. Um, we installed cam. Well, we already had cameras around the house, but we installed more cameras around the house because I also knew that there was going to be a um, a spate of uh, violence, threatened violence towards me. Uh, that was a real possibility, and in fact, it did it did happen. Um, and so, I wanted to be prepared for that. But I think, from a cultural perspective as well you know, there is still a stigma to telling your story. And that is why so many women across this country are talking about feeling empowered when you tell your story, because it shouldn't be that case. I mean, it shouldn't be that we should have to tell our story. Number one, this is a very personal decision, but we are in a reality where these stories are important. It's important to not have women uh, or pregnant people feel like they are in a closet somewhere and they can't talk about this. And there is such a diversity of experiences and nuances to everyone's abortion story. For me, it was a difficult decision. It was a very difficult decision. And it was it is something that I still think about today. But that isn't the case for everybody. Just so people understand, and maybe you can fill this in a little bit. The background of your decision was that you had had a child who was born extremely prematurely, I, I think at a weight of one pound, 14 ounces. And you made the decision, as you say in your op-ed, that you would do anything to avoid getting pregnant. And as you say, those measures are not always foolproof. And you found yourself pregnant. And what did the doctors tell you? That's exactly right. The doctors told me that there was uh, no way, there was a very high probability that um, that I was going to have a similar kind of birth experience, which I was still dealing with a very, very sick child. And I was still dealing with a lot of emotional um, trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder that I had had from going through that experience. And they also told me that there was a real possibility of danger to my own health, which was the case in my first pregnancy as well. And I just knew there was no way that I could go through another pregnancy like that. I was still recovering from the first one. And as I said, I had done everything possible and was very, very regular and religious about my birth control, but it didn't work. And so um, I had to make that choice of whether I was ready to bring uh, another uh, baby into the world, knowing that that baby may not survive or may go through the same experience that Jenna had gone through um, and also protecting my own life. And I realized there was no way I could do that. So I, um, I chose to have an abortion and I was fortunate because I did not have uh, income restrictions. You know, I was able to afford it. Uh, my state, Washington state, uh, has made it so that abortions are available and affordable compared to most other states. Um, I had a very skilled provider and I had, you know, I, I had the support of my partner who completely understood why I was doing what I was doing and had been a part of the decision-making. And, you know, so in every way I had it easy. Um, but that's exactly why I had to talk about it, because that's what it should be for every person. And these abortion bans, and now we've seen, you know, the worst of it. And with the Supreme Court uh, arguments the other day, I think, you know, we are confronting the fact that we may go back to back alley abortions, that we may take away this constitutional right that was provided because the Supreme Court apparently is not going to consider precedent um, any longer or is going to consider it in a way that allows them to overturn uh, precedents. And so I think it has been a, it was an important article that I wrote. And at the time, Preet, the thing that made me the most happy about it was that in sharing my story, it generated conversations at kitchen tables and you know, workplaces across the country. I got so many letters from people saying, your article made me tell my loved one, my mother, my sister, my whoever, uh, my best friend about the abortion that I had. And it forced a conversation also about folks of color and abortion, because it, it is also true that when you limit abortion services, it is, uh, it is particularly difficult for women of color, for people of color, for poor people, 
um, who don't have the resources to fly to another state and get an abortion. And so I think on so many levels, it was an amazing opportunity for me to share my story and to generate conversation. And perhaps the best response I got was from a man who was a constituent, who was, uh, uh, I forget, either a conservative Democrat or a Republican, a conservative Democrat who was not pro-abortion, who said that he opened the article thinking, oh, my God, here goes another liberal telling me, you know, why I should believe in abortion. And in my piece, I made it very clear that I don't try to convince anybody to have an abortion. That is not my place. The whole point of this is that it should be your choice. And he said, I was just so grateful to see that argument. And for the first time, I feel like I might be able to understand why we should uh, not force this choice on anyone else. And, you know, I think that's what you hope to do with a piece is just affect how people see it and think about it. Through a story rather than through, you know, political argument. That's right. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Congresswoman Jayapal after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. How do you explain to constituents, I might have this figure off and we'll double check it, but I thought I read somewhere in the past week that the level of support for the overturning of Roe is like 27%. And here we are, something like that. And here we are on the precipice of Roe being overruled. I think there's a very high likelihood of it. And even if it's not done explicitly, it will effectively be done based on what we saw at the argument that you just mentioned. How do you explain to constituents how it can be that a, that a right that people have relied upon for five decades and that only 27% of people want to have taken away in a constitutional democracy, how can that possibly happen? How do you explain that? Well, I can't really explain it other than to say that these um, institutions that we have relied on to protect our democracy and you have spent your life, you know, really making sure that those have integrity, that these institutions are now being politicized in a way that is extremely dangerous to our democracy. That's true in Congress. It's true of the Supreme Court. And that's why I keep saying to people, you know, the power has to be in your vote and in the ballot box, because we now need to make sure that we are electing a Congress that can uh, that can implement the things that Americans want. But even that is flawed. I mean, we have to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate if we really want to have policies like gun reform, um, you know, abortion rights codified. Uh, if we want to move forward on a $15 minimum wage, all of these things are blocked by a Senate that gives the power of, it's really the tyranny of the minority, um, the power to block a bill from even being considered because you need 60 votes because of the filibuster. So I think um, it is difficult to explain. And I think it's why there are so many people across the country that have lost faith and don't participate because, you know, there's so much money in politics that affects what happens in Congress. And then people are seeing the way in which even the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, is simply becoming an ideological, political 
reactionary court. It's not just a conservative court. It is a reactionary court. And I think that is um, that is going to do an enormous amount of harm to our democracy. And I hope that Chief Justice Roberts and, and others on the court are thinking about exactly what that means if they roll back or overturn Roe, which, as you said, looks very likely. Yeah. I'm going to talk about progressivism. My first question is, do you prefer the term progressive over liberal for any particular reason? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I think progressive has become a a term that resonates for people that are more towards the left, particularly on fiscal issues. You know, and I think on economic issues, that's where some of the difference comes And so I think that's the term we use. And obviously, I'm a progressive caucus member, so I use the word progressive. Uh, I'm the chair of the progressive caucus. And so that's that's in a broader sense, when we when we use progressive, I want to ask you some questions about the caucus. Yeah. In a moment. How, How do you define progressive? I think the way I define it is an absolute unshakable focus on lifting up the majority of people, poor and working class versus the very small minority at the top. And and there are a whole host of things that come into that. But that, I think, is the core of what we're talking about when we talk about progressive policies, is what lifts up the most vulnerable, what lifts up poor people, working people who don't have uh, as much of a say as they should in, in democracy and in government. And that is true whether you're talking about economics, whether you're talking about um, social policy, like uh, LGBTQ equality, or whether you're talking about immigration and and issues that directly affect Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. How big a tent is progressivism? It's a very big tent, but I think, you know, I have always wondered um, how, how, you know, how much better we would be if we had multiple parties versus just one one Democratic Party and one Republican Party. But we have a two-party system essentially in this country. And so it is a very big tent. I think we have made enormous progress in moving the country to a much better place on so many policies like $15 minimum wage. You know, um, 12 years ago, it was not a mainstream democratic principle. Today it is. That's true of LGBTQ equality. It's true less so of immigration. Um, That has really seen swings back and forth and back and forth, but it is still the case that the vast majority of Americans believe in really inclusive immigration policy. And so I, I think it is a big tent and it's important that we keep it a big tent, but it's also important that we recognize there are real barriers to implementing progressive policy, the majority of which come in the form of Things that are xenophobic and, you know, target groups like immigrants or black folks in this country. And the second is economic policy. I mean, we we are really stuck with the amount of money in politics that pre- prevents us, even as Democrats, from implementing bold prescription drug reform or implementing bold tax reform. That has been a frustration because even if that is not just a Republicans versus Democrats issue, don't get me wrong, Democrats are 100 times better on these issues. But there is no reason that we shouldn't, as a Democratic majority, be able to implement bold tax reform or drug reform. Those are basic economic issues that would really help us to say to people across this country, we're for you. Whether you're rural, whether you're in a Trump district, whether you're in a Democratic district, we want to cut your costs. We want to make sure that you can have a better life and opportunity. Is Nancy Pelosi a progressive? Yeah, she is a progressive. You know, and she comes from uh, San Francisco. But you have to remember that Speaker Pelosi is also the leader of a Democratic caucus that is much more diverse. And so I think that, you know, she has to balance all of the different pieces of the Democratic caucus. I'm not saying I always agree with every decision she makes, uh, but I do think that that is a different that is a different role that she's playing to be speaker. What about Jim Clyburn? You know, I think I don't know that that Representative Clyburn, uh, Whip Clyburn, would define himself as a progressive. I think there are a lot of issues that um, he is absolutely progressive on, and then some uh, less so. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to how to answer that question. I've never really thought about that one uh, clearly. But he also comes from a very different part of the country, and you know, I think that all plays into it. 
So let's talk about the Congressional Progressive Caucus for a moment that you lead. Tell folks about it. How many, how many members are there? How do you get entry? Is there a quiz you got to pass? <laughs> Is there a litmus test? Yes, it's a very difficult test that you have to pass. No, it's a 96-member strong caucus. It was founded over 20 years ago, and it was initially founded more as a social club, you know, for people of, of strong ideological alliance to be together. Uh, Chairman DeFazio, Peter DeFazio, who just sadly announced his retirement, was one of the co-founders. Bernie Sanders, of course, uh, Maxine Waters, and, and several others were all co-founders of the Progressive Caucus. But when I came into Congress, it became really clear to me that um, Keith Ellison, who was co-chair at the time, and Raul Grijalva, were both trying to change that to be a more disciplined, sort of focused caucus. But that was still very much at the beginning stages of that. And when Mark Pocan and I took over as co-chairs, and we even before we took over as co-chairs, we started working on really building up the caucus and putting a new definition to it, updating our vision statement, our um, goals, our priorities, which was something that hadn't been done in a long time, but also changing the rules to make sure that we were making it mean something to be a part of the Progressive Caucus. And so that involved, you know, putting together a list of flagship Progressive Caucus bills that if you were going to be a member of the Progressive Caucus, you had to sign on to at least 70% of that flagship legislation, that you had to vote with the caucus. I mean, you, you had to literally become, you had to literally become a sponsor of that legislation. Correct. Exactly. You had to co-sponsor that legislation in Congress. And over the course of a year, we would check to see that you had done that because those are the principles and the policy positions of the Progressive Caucus. And it needed to be that you, you know, that you, that you stood for those things. So not every single thing. Yeah. You were about to say, I think also that the rules now require members to vote with the CPC at least two thirds of the time. Correct. If, if we take a position and so, and to take a position, you have to get to 66% or more of the caucus. And so, um, so that has been, I think, a really important discussion, even though it hasn't necessarily been used as much, but it is the theory that we are voting as a block. And that is what we were able to do in the Build Back Better Act. But also there were other things that we did to really encourage people to feel identified with the Progressive Caucus. So, you know, attendance at meetings, it sounds like a really you know, basic thing. You take attendance? We we require that people attend at least 50% of the meetings and you would be amazed. Only 50%, that, but that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, only 50%. That's pretty, that's pretty forgiving. It is very forgiving. And, and it's really, we also started doing, you know, we added to the staff. We finally raised our dues. Progressives never like to raise dues. I came in and I was like, why don't we have more staff for a 96 member caucus? We had one person. And so people said, oh, well, we don't have money because you have to raise dues for members in order to pay for staff. And so I said, well, let's raise the dues and let's get more staff. So we now have, I think it's five staff, a communications director, a policy director, a fellow, an executive director. You know, So we've really added to our capacity to service our members. And now we do communications points every week. Everyone gets communications points so that we can be disciplined about our messaging. That was something you saw that I'm very proud of in the Build Back Better fight over the last year. People were extremely disciplined on what our talking points were and how we were going to stick to them and how we were going to use them to continue to build momentum. So it's been a really fabulous opportunity for us as a progressive caucus to show what happens when you leverage and organize on the inside and really bring people in so that it's not just three or four members, which as you know, Preet, with the slim majorities we have, you only need three members to, you know, to, to stop, to block a piece of legislation. But we wanted something much different. I wanted to have more than half of our Progressive Caucus members for any big decision we were making, more than half to be on the same place. And that's really what we were able to get. Have you had to kick anyone out? Uh, we haven't had to kick anybody out, but there are a couple of members that, because this is our first year with the rules, that are going to be notified that they need to do a little bit of work over the next six months in order to comply. <laughs> Come to more meetings, <laughs> sign on to more legislation. So let, let's talk about, in the, in the remaining time, Build Back Better. 
And in that fight, you have been incredibly important and influential and a leader, and that's been acknowledged. And so congratulations on that. We're not, we're not over the finish line yet. First pragmatic question. We're recording this on, on Monday, December 6th, and so it doesn't drop until Thursday. Maybe things will become more clear. The odds of this thing getting through the Senate by Christmas are what? Well, I think they're very good. Um, I know that Leader Schumer is committed to getting it done before Christmas. I know we all are putting enormous pressure on him and on the president and the White House to get it done before Christmas. Um, And frankly, there's no reason not to. Uh, One of the stumbling blocks right now is this, you know, the, the fact that everything has to be run through the parliamentarian in the Senate. And the parliamentarian does have some health concerns. I can't believe that we're down to one woman having health concerns that's, you know, slowing down the process here. But that is a reality of the system. Isn't there a deputy parliamentarian? There is, but I think that it still has to be run by the parliamentarian, you know, approving everything. And so it's a ridiculous system, in my my opinion, not because there's anything wrong with her. She's just doing her job. But you know, the idea that we are pushing all these major decisions to one woman who is unelected, uh, one person who is unelected is is ridiculous in my mind. But that's the situation we have. So there are certain things that have to be run through the parliamentarian because of what is called this birdbath, right? This is the, the argument that in order to use 51 votes instead of 60 votes, you're using a process called budget reconciliation. And so only things that dramatically affect the budget and hew to certain parameters are the things that can be included. And the parliamentarian is the person who decides if that is the case. So most of the legislation was actually pre-conferenced, agreed to by the majority of, you know, the all of, actually all of the senators and House representatives. We've obviously passed it through the House already. So we are now just waiting for the parliamentarian to sort of approve the things that are in there. And then, of course, there's the constant discussion with one or two senators. But I believe that part is, is less the issue, the procedural parliamentarian issue is the thing we're worrying about now. And then we just need to move forward. This is the president's agenda. It's much scaled down, unfortunately, but the reality of not having more of a margin in the Senate and the House means that even if you have 96% of Democrats in the House and the Senate with the President of the United States, that's not enough. You need to have essentially 100%. And so we scaled it back because of Senators Manchin and Cinema, and we came to a pre-conferenced agreement, and it is still a transformational package that we passed in the House, and now we just need to get it through the Senate because the American people desperately need this assistance. It will lower costs for Americans across the country. It'll provide universal pre-K, universal child care, cut prescription drug pricing costs for families across the country, extend the child tax credit. I mean, we could go invest in housing, biggest investment. Well, I want to, I want to talk about that. We'll talk about a phenomenon that is somewhat related to one we talked about a few minutes ago. And a few minutes ago, we talked about how the vast majority of the public doesn't want Roe to be overturned, and yet here we are. And this is not quite that, but you have particular policies here. You mentioned the lowering of prescription drug prices, which is enormously powerful, enormously popular, hugely popular, overdue. People really want it. Popular with conservatives, progressives, all sorts of folks in between. And the phenomenon I'm talking about is, you know, Joe Biden, you know, even as Joe Biden is trying to enact and is enacting popular policies, his own personal popularity doesn't seem to be benefiting. And there have been political scientists and other observers who are saying we're we're reaching a time when there's just a disconnect between the popularity of policies and the popularity of the people who are responsible for getting that done. It strikes me that that's anti-democratic and dangerous. Do you subscribe to that theory or have any explanation for it? Well, I think it is true. And I think it goes to the question of facts again, and, you know, the use of social media to distort what is true when it comes to COVID. And I think when it comes to Joe Biden, I think the reality is we're coming out of these massive crises, but it's, it's not fast. I mean, it's slow going to come out of the biggest 
economic devastation that we have seen since the Great Depression, some might argue worse than that. You know, I think it is it is we're coming out of a health crisis with COVID that is slow. It is extremely difficult because it is such a massive issue around the country. Such a tiny percentage of people around the world have been vaccinated thanks to vaccine equity and global health inequity. And so I think these things take time. And I think if you had a a country that was willing to acknowledge that we are moving in the right direction and doesn't make healthcare partisan, you know, COVID partisan, it would be a different situation. But I think the other piece is that we have such slim majorities in the Democratic Party. And so we were able to institute the American Rescue Plan. We immediately went on to trying to get Build Back Better done. We're not very good about talking about what we've done and celebrating what we've done because there's so much we have to do. And I think we have to be much better. Remember during the um, during the WPA, there were those big signs everywhere provided for by your taxpayer dollars, the United States government, you know, whether it was new highway or whatever. We need a real public campaign around the fact that Democrats have cut child poverty in half, the fact that we have vaccinated, you know, more people than people thought was possible when Joe Biden came into office. Do you think part of the part of the reason that that's not being done better by the Democrats is that more of them were not English lit majors? (laughs) I do think we need uh, good communicators. And I think that that is something I've spent a lot of time on. I was not anticipating I would spend so much time on network television, but I feel like it was it became an opportunity to talk about what's in Build Back Better. And I I just think simpler messages, you know, people talk about inflation all the time. I'm like, stop talking about inflation. Talk about, you know, when a family has a fixed income and fixed budget, you got to make costs go down if some costs go up. If your cost of gas goes up, then make the cost of childcare go down. That's how people deal with their budgets, right? Most of my families are not talking to me about inflation. They're talking to me about the rising cost of diapers or the rising cost of childcare. And so that's the way we need to talk about stuff. And I think we have a hard time doing that as Democrats sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I worry, and I, I take your point on messaging, and, and I think that's very, very important. But I worry that, you know, because of tribalism and all sorts of other things, people are just not giving credit to policymakers for good policies. That People have made a decision about, you know, about Biden, associate him with a party, some of whose elements they don't like, and no matter what good comes of it, he doesn't get credit. I, I agree. And if, and if that persists, if that persists, and, and so I don't kind of don't know what to do about that. Well, I, I think that will change, though, the sooner we can get it. What happens is a lot of the 24-7 news cycle focuses on process. It does not focus on outcome. It focuses on process. And process is messy in a democracy with narrow margins. And so everybody's focused on process, process, process. But the reality is, I kept saying to anybody I would go on TV with, I was like, you have to let me talk about what's in the bill because you're going to ask me about process and I want to talk about what's in the bill. And so, you know, I think we have to recognize that that's part of the problem here. And it is part of the challenge with the Democratic Party that is is not wholly behind the agenda that the president has laid out. We've wasted a lot of time getting to Build Back Better. And I think had we done this six months ago, it would have been a heck of a lot better. But we tend to, in politics, focus on the things that are easier. And it was easier to get a bipartisan win on infrastructure and then to just leave out Build Back Better, which is 80% of the president's agenda. And we weren't going to let that happen. But then that did lead to, you know, a public negotiation that was very much into the details. So I don't know. I have more hope, Preet, that as soon as we pass Build Back Better, we will have a full, you know, eight months to be out there talking about how we're lowering prescription drug costs, how we're getting childcare to every family. And those things will affect how people see President Biden. But I also think we have to tout, I mean, look, the president under his leadership, we have brought unemployment down to 4.2%. That's a quarter before the CBO projected we would get to that level, two percentage drop. We have created 6 million new jobs under this president in just 10 months. We have cut child poverty in half through the child tax credit. So many things that we have done. And we need to talk about it instead of talking about what we haven't done. And we need to have a positive outlook on things because there's too much 
trauma and negativity and hate in the world today. And people want to know what's possible and what's good out there that we can look forward to. I mean, they need to feel it. That's right. It's one thing to say prescription drug prices will go down, but it's quite another thing, you know, to go to the pharmacy and pay less for insulin. That's exactly right. And, and that hasn't happened yet. And I think there's so much mistrust. I mean, so, so, that, so I am optimistic for that reason and maybe that reason alone, that just because, you know, representatives and a president are saying this is going to happen, people are so cynical, they don't quite believe it until it happens and until they feel it in their own personal pocketbook. That's exactly right. And that is the difference between the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which don't get me wrong, it's great. I love it. It's going to take a while. <laughs> Lots of great things in it. But, you know, it's very different for somebody to say, okay, well, I, I'm going to get a new road versus I'm going to be able to get childcare so that I can get on that new road and get right. back to work. Um, that is, those are two different things. And I think Build Back Better Act has the things that people will feel. They'll wake up in the morning and they'll say, wow, my life feels different today because I have childcare, because I can pay for my insulin, you know, all of these things. It, that is what we're trying to get at. And that's what the Build Back Better Act has that frankly, I don't think the infrastructure bill has as wonderful as it is. Representative Pramila Jayapal, thanks for being on the show. It was a real treat. Thank you, Preet. Great talking to you. My conversation with Congresswoman Jayapal continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So I've noticed lately that there have been a lot of questions about how you kind of take care of yourself in the midst of these terrible news cycles and with the worry about creeping untruth and the undoing of elections and the breakdown of some of our institutions. And it has people anxious and worried, not to mention the scourge of coronavirus, which is still with us. And people ask, you know, how do you deal with that? Uh, here are two examples. This is a tweet from Twitter user Forbes to now. Is there any way not to get depressed and still stay focused on the erosion of democracy? Not just in the States, but everywhere. Hashtag AskPreet. Here's another one from Twitter user at Ronnie Widelick. How in the heck do you decompress with all the awful news? Hashtag AskPreet. For me, it's, it's a few things. It's music and comedy. I like to laugh a lot. I watch uh, and download lots of shows and my family. But I had the same question in the last few days. I put it slightly differently, and so maybe I should get some of the answers that you all gave. I posted simply on Twitter, what keeps you sane? And we got literally thousands of responses on that social media site. I'll note a few things. One of the most popular categories of answer as to what keeps people sane were their pets. There were a lot of dog and cat pictures, which we appreciated, even a few horses. A lot of people talked about quilting, uh, more than you might have expected. People also mentioned books, hiking cooking, friends, dancing. That was one of my favorites. And of course, some people agreed with me about laughter, comedians, and music. Here's some of my favorite responses. Maybe gives you some ideas for yourself. Here was a cheeky response tweet that said, objection, your honor, assumes facts, not in evidence. I guess that's true. I don't know if you're sane or not. This answer came from Connie Schultz, who happens to be married to Senator Sherrod Brown. What keeps her sane? She responded, Love flowing in, flowing forth. This response was from Amy Parker. Chocolate, rye, books, music, and my quilting business. I spend a lot of time face first in beautiful quilts, and their gorgeousness keeps me sane. That does not mean I'm not thoroughly terrified also, and I think both can be true at the same time. Here was another answer, which focused on nature. This person said, I live in the country on a quiet rural road. Deer visit every day. It's quiet. Oh, there is honking geese, but no honking horns, no sirens. The neighbors are few, but kind and caring and fun. People talked about their hobbies. One person talked about photography. My coping mechanism, this person wrote, is photography and digital art. It pushes back what I can't control, but is dominating my thoughts as I focus on what is within reach of my eyes and hands. 
And we got so many other beautiful responses as well. I think the important point of all of this is please do worry about your country. Please do think about how you can make a contribution. Please do think about how to get other people to register to vote and vote when the time comes. But it can't be 24-7. Just like work can't be 24-7. You have to do things for yourself to keep calm, to keep sane, to keep focused, so you can do all the other hard work that needs to be done to help the country. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.